This call is being recorded. Hello and welcome to my show, Searching for Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? Because our country suffers from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. We have as our guest today, Mr. Daniel Levine, who is the author of Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. Daniel, are you there? I am here. Pleasure to be with you, John. Very good. Thank you for being here. Uh, you have a fascinating book, and uh, I'd like to tell you why I know that. It was because a few days ago I thought, well, let's get prepared on interviewing Daniel. And then I thought, well, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and read the book. And then I figured I wasn't, didn't have enough time. So I, I listened to Audible for the last two days, and it's still good. The book is very good. I'm glad to hear that. Yes. Now, let me ask you the other question again. Um, you are certainly multilingual. And how many languages do you speak? I speak about eight languages. Eight. Interesting. Very interesting. How do you do all that? <laughs> you know, it just was the result of my life. I, you know, I was born in Israel, moved from Israel to Africa. So we first spoke, you know, English at home because my parents, that was their common language. Then I spoke uh, Hebrew because I was born there. Then we moved to Africa and I became friends with a lot of kids in Kenya. So I ended up speaking Swahili and Kikuyu, some local languages. And Swahili later helped me learn Arabic, and uh, then we moved back to Israel, then to Switzerland. I learned German. My mom was from the Italian-French part of the country, so I also learned French and Italian. So it just evolved that way. Then I studied Russian in high school. I was interested in that. So it just was a consequence of the life I led, and obviously I wanted to, you know, given the work that I do a lot of it in Arab countries, in the Middle East and in the Gulf, I wanted to learn Arabic beyond just basic Arabic, and so I... Uh, ended up having a Palestinian Arabic teacher for many years. So, you know, it's just a result of both m my background, where I've lived, uh, rather than any particular skill set, and, and the fact that my work required me to learn a language. Well, you have certainly absorbed it. Um, and in, in doing so, you're, you're a lucky guy. Um, because now you can, you can decipher most what language is, is about and what they're talking about. You know, John, my, my, my kids actually make fun of me because they say that my accent tends to adjust to whoever I'm talking to, and so it's a result of having lived in different places. So my son actually uh, can tell me who I'm talking to on the phone just by the way my <laughs> accent changes. <laughs> that's good. That's good. At least they're paying attention. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um now you were talking about the foundation that uh, that, that you're you're affiliated with. Could you elaborate some more of that, please? Yeah, is, I run a foundation in Europe. Uh, it's called the Liechtenstein Foundation for State Governance. It was founded uh, 12 years ago by the Prince of Liechtenstein, with the idea of helping countries in war zones, failed states, countries that are suffering from massive underdevelopment and poverty, helping them emerge from their predicament. In many cases, in war zones in particular, what that means is we try to identify 20, 30 young people, men and women from different parts of the country, not just children of privileged people, 
uh, and take them out of the country and prepare them for future leadership positions, whether it's in government, in the private sector, in, in health care, in education, uh, and, and try to really prepare them both from a character perspective, make sure that they maintain an integrity, don't become corrupt, and also provide them the substantive knowledge for their specific challenges that are going to lie ahead. And uh, it's this kind of work that we've been doing all these years, and it's the kind of work that brought me into places also like Syria, where in 2012-2013 we were asked to do that kind of a project and also mediate between the sides to the civil war there. This was at a time when the war wasn't decided. And um, it's a really gratifying kind of work, but it also can be very depressing and frustrating because in some cases in Syria was such a failure where the wars then escalate or one side starts to win the war, which has happened in Syria when in 2015 the Russians intervened on behalf of the regime. Uh, and then the incentive to do this kind of immediated investment into the future of the country with these young people goes away and then the projects sometimes die. So that, you know, that in a nutshell is the work of our foundation. It's, uh, it's really very interesting, fascinating work, but it's emotionally sometimes extremely draining. You know, I <clears throat> I had already written down the words emotional draining <laughs> just in the last uh, two minutes. Uh, it's a it's a good thing what you're doing, and you're doing it in a good in a, in a place that, that maybe things don't go when you, what you expect to, but but still that area needs uh, uh, I guess some more work or some more attention is, is a way to put it. Yeah, uh, you know, it's the, the draining part is really the personal, on the human level part. It's not, you know, we all live with failures. I mean, a baseball player, the best baseball players fail, you know, two out of three times. And so it's not so much the the fact that a project doesn't succeed or doesn't have the desired results. It's that you you become really emotionally vested with the people you're trying to help, whether it's, you know, a young future politician or doctor or educator or social worker um, that you want to help, and then when the whole projects die, you really feel like you've you know, abandoned them in a way. And of course, in the case of missing people and hostages, there's a lot of heartbreak in there. I mean, very, very few of those stories have a happy ending, as I write about it in the book. Uh, and so that that definitely is draining. You often have a lot of interaction with the families of the missing people, and you go through their agony with them. It's you know, it's probably the reason why surgeons don't try not to become too emotionally vested with the patients that they treat because it can be uh, there can be a lot of heartache and heartbreak uh involved in it. So we don't have that luxury because we really become integrated in these people's lives. So it, yeah, emotionally it can be it can be very hard. Even in this story, uh there are two young girls that I meet that had been taken from their villages in Syria and sold into sex slavery in the Gulf in Dubai and Saudi Arabia and uh, I ended up actually getting really invested in their lives and, and uh, with a, myself and a group of friends in our foundation managed to get them out of there and bring them to a Western European country and give them new identities and start a life. And this is now seven years ago. There are now young women. One of the older of the two just graduated law school and has a new life. So you're very that was very gratifying, but emotionally it is extremely draining. It's like having another child or another family. Is it is it more difficult uh, working in, let's say, Syria uh, today versus uh, working in Syria, say, seven or eight years ago? It is. Uh, the country is completely destroyed. I, I don't even go to Syria anymore. You know, at the time when we got involved, this violence in the Civil War exploded 
uh, in a way that no one had predicted. Uh, you know, there were demonstrations in part of the Arab Spring that, that st- raged across the Arab world in 2011, also got to Syria, and there were people, a lot of young people, demonstrating against an increase in bread and wheat prices. And instead of just reasonably engaging with them, especially in light of the huge wealth gap between the elite and the and most of the population, the president, who was a very insecure man, uh, just crushed the demonstrators, beat little children to death, just the most unbelievable violence. And so the the war exploded in a way that no one had predicted. But early in the first years of the war, when we were active there, no one was really gaining the upper hand. And so everyone had an interest in trying to mediate some solution to to end the killing. Now, that's very different in Syria because the regime was aided by Russia and Iran. And so they have absolutely no incentive to to be reasonable, to mediate, to to embrace and engage in opposition and try to build the country up together. So for me, there's really nothing left to do in Syria, unfortunately, because uh, it's just now ruled by a dictator who feels secure in his situation. That was different. When we were there seven, eight years ago, uh, there was still a sense that we could make a difference because everyone was interested in figuring a way out. I recall that, and I've, I've See it, still see it on the news today, and I I guess I could probably easily conclude that that Syria doesn't have a middle class. It's either um, the warlords uh, or the people in charge, or the or the others who have nothing. That's true. That I mean, that's true for almost all wars. Wherever you go, there's uh, you have a few, very very few, sometimes mm-hmm. a handful of people and their families who are stupendously wealthy who become billionaires in the war because they control the supply of everything from food to medicine to water to drugs to weapons to everything. They control it, mobile phones. And then you have 99.999% of the population that's, that loses everything, and everything in between gets wiped out. You know, I, I mean, it doesn't always take a war to show that, but the wars show that in the extreme. And, and what happens is you, have, you get this war economy where people are starving, and and just a very few people are becoming billionaires because they control the supply of food. And since there's so little, they can charge for it whatever they want. And of course, I learned from from your book that they make huge profits. Uh, the people that that uh, are in charge of the of the food, for instance. They do. And, you know, very often, and I describe this in the book, the same ones who control the supply of food or water or drugs or medicine or whatever are also the ones who manufacture the drugs, who create the problems in the war economy. So I'm dealing here, I'm trying to find this missing person, and I end up having to connect to this drug lord who controls the entire market of this drug called Captagon, which is still a huge problem, and it's ravaging entire countries. I mean, a huge percentage of young Saudi males are addicted to Captagon, which is very, very insidious amphetamine uh, that create that has terrible side effects, including toxicity in the heart and in the blood. Uh, and so these the same lo- drug lords are the ones who are also controlling the supply of medicine you know, or now vaccines, mm-hmm. if we're talking the pandemic. And so they enrich themselves in such awful ways. And what the other thing that you learn is that when it comes to making money in the war economy, that there are no real enemies. All there are are business partners. Uh, it's really fascinating, meaning that the sides that fight each other to death, that send you know, men into their death for fighting for wars that just benefit them, those same individuals coordinate the markets and trade among themselves. I've, been in, I've seen 
with my own eyes Western hostages be captured by Islamic rebels such as the Nusra Front or ISIS in Syria and be traded to a militia of the government and from them back to a different militia and so on and so on. So they do business together at all levels, from trading hostages to young women to drugs to food to anything. So uh, the war economy doesn't really have war parties. It really just has business partners. Uh, and, and so, of course, the entire population pays an awful, unbelievable price for that. That's, uh, that's amazing. Now, is, is Yemen uh, part of that same um, <clears throat> result? Yeah, Yemen is Yemen's really a sad story because Yemen has been so fractured for so long. I mean, even in the 50s, the Egyptian president Nasser tried to uh, try to uh, be effective in Yemen, and that was one of his worst foreign policy losses, and probably ended his political career. He at the time was was viewed as the big pan pan Arab leader. Uh, Yemen has has been is kind of the Arabs Afghanistan, if you want to put it that way, or the Arabs Vietnam to you put you to put it in U.S. terms. Uh, and so what has happened in Yemen, Yemen is a country with about 187 tribes. And uh, most of them don't view themselves as part of a national identity. You have, of course, a religious split in the country. You have the Shia Muslims called Houthis, and then you have the Sunni Muslims who are more closely affiliated with the monarchies in the Gulf, such as Saudi Arabia. Uh, and But it's not just a religious war. It's really also a tribal war that parts of Yemen, it looks like a country that really shouldn't be one country because of all these tribes, which is not something new. The lines that were drawn drawn in the early 20th century, like the Sykes-Picot line in the Middle East, these were random borders, just like in Africa. You see random borders. You have countries like Congo that are the size of Western Europe, and you have tiny little microstates like Lesotho, Swaziland, where you don't understand exactly why they exist that way. So same thing in the Middle East and same thing in Yemen. So part of our work in Yemen, actually, with this young team is not just to train them to be active in a future Yemen state. In fact, part of the work we're doing them is working on a constitutional reform to redefine the state, to see whether perhaps Yemen shouldn't be a federation of regions or of tribes, uh, whether it shouldn't be something close, or whether it's a U.S. model, like a federalist structure, or a Swiss model, which was the one that the U.S. was based on, where you have a lot of autonomy for regions or for tribes, and then one capital for those areas where you need a joint policy, such as foreign policy or military policy. Uh, and that's, that's something that we're working on with this team. So we, when we do work in these countries, we don't just say, hey, listen, uh, we're trying to get you back to where you were before the fighting broke out. That doesn't make any sense because you haven't removed the reasons for the fight. Uh, what we try to do is say, well, there's a problem in a country like Yemen because there is no national co cohesion. These are tribes, in some cases cooperate, in other cases hate each other. Uh, how, do we, how do we figure out a way of coexistence in that territory in a way that is acceptable to everyone? So that, and that gets very granular. It's not just a matter of a new constitution. Do you, for example, allow for tribal courts, judges that have jurisdiction only within these tribes? This gets what is the role of, of Islamic religious law within those tribal courts. It gets very, very intricate. So the work is fascinating, even from an academic perspective. But what's, of course, the most gratifying is to be able to help the people that you're working with to try and build these future leaders. But you can't do it if you also don't get the support, and I don't mean financial support, the political support of all the outside countries that have a stake. You look at Yemen, you have the two main outside countries with a stake is Saudi Arabia on the one side, Iran on the other side. 
if they don't support this process, everything that you do gets undermined. Same thing in Libya, same thing in, uh, same thing in, in uh, Syria at the time. So it's not only important to go in there and, and work with the people on the ground and try to make their lives better. It really is also important to make sure that the outside parties that in their own weird ge geopolitical thinking feel that they benefit from this fight, uh, that they back off and allow for solutions to take hold. I understand, at least from, from the book, that uh, uh, m multiple layers of multiple players, um, of, of, of people, of the economy, of, uh, I can't really say government, uh, they, don't, they don't seem to, to appear. Uh, or, or be active. Um, I also thought that um, you may have a gift. Uh, it's when you um, would determine there is a certain scent in the room or an odor from an, uh, a different people, women, men, that type of thing. Do you have a gift for that? You know, I don't know if a gift is is the right word. I feel blessed that this is something that I that has helped me. A gift is perhaps too grand a word or talent. I think it gets overused a little bit too too quickly. Uh, it's something I've, I, I, when I was a little boy, I felt that when people were scared or bullies in particular, that they emitted a certain scent. I didn't quite do much with it. I just thought that's how some people smelled. And later on, I, I studied martial arts for many, many years, really most of my life, even since I was a little boy. For almost over 50 years, I've been studying martial arts. And that led me to some Eastern healing arts, one in particular, a Japanese healing uh, method called Jinshin Jitsu, which uh, taught me, when I, when I really deepened my knowledge, just for decades I've been doing this, that when, it, when I learned more about it, that people in a disharmonized state emit certain odors, uh, and those disharmonized states are caused by certain emotions, fear, anger, anxiety, sadness, pretense, uh, many different types of, of emotions that, that uh, trigger in this disharmonized state, which causes all these illnesses, certain odors. And, you know, really, this sounds more grand than it actually is. It's something that, that when you work with this and when you treat people and when you work on yourself, you just become a little more sensitized to it. So more than calling it a gift, I would just call it being having a certain sensitivity to that. Okay. I'll buy sensitivity. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, the other parts that I, that I enjoyed uh, in the book is that when uh, back to the languages, number of languages, and you would describe uh, uh, you know, some some Arabic with a uh, with, with a, a hint of uh, I don't know northern um, Romania. Uh, it was you, th those the descriptions pop up all all the time, and they're and they're good. They keep you on your toes as a reader. Well, I'm glad you appreciate it. You know, for it, it was you're into this situation. I mean, you put yourself in a place where you're looking for someone who went missing in Syria. You travel all over the Middle East. I had this very pressure-filled night in Beirut with one of the prominent militia leaders there, and from there, you know, you travel. You know, it's Istanbul, Beirut, Jordan, Amman, then Dubai, and you're searching for these thugs. Basically, who are supposed to be able to tell you what happened to the missing person, and you interact with very unpleasant people. And you have to interact on their home turf, but you also have to be very careful not to overestimate yourself. I, I write in the book that something a, a friend once taught me, 
is that if you're in a room playing poker and you can't figure out who the sucker is, chances are it's you. Uh, and it's something that, that I think has served me well in, in the sense of not overestimating yourself. And part of that is the way you use language. So um, being sensitive to the way someone speaks not just says something about uh, where they're from, but also about their character, whether people curse or whether they use grand grand words or not, whether they, even in English, when you speak to someone, some people keep using the word frankly, like some self-awarded price for speaking the truth. And so those are moments you become really sensitive when when the voice goes up at the end of a sentence like it's a question, uh, mm-hmm. which, which evidences a certain insecurity in some way. So you become sensitive. And just in Arabic, what was so interesting is that uh, Arabic comes in so many different forms, as just just like English, uh, in different dialects. So if, if, for example, someone speaks to me in a very soft Arabic where the G is more like a Y, and I know they'll come from the Gulf, from a certain place, and I'll be able to engage with them that way, with that kind of a dialect, it immediately creates a certain intimacy, and the barriers drop. It's just a familiarity that language can create, and, and it served me you know, very, very well in the work that I do, in, if it's a language I happen to speak, because it, it just created a bond with a person. If you think about it, it's actually true. If Even if you speak English to someone, if you have a particular accent based on where you grew up or spent your life uh, and a way of intonating words, if you end up interacting with people who speak in a very similar way, it, it just it sort of breaks down certain barriers that might otherwise exist and, and make a conversation more stiff. So that's really all that that is. I, I enjoyed uh, <clears throat> one of the characters, uh, or people, I should say, um, and that was Mike. And now I have to ask you, did you graduate from the University of Michigan? No, uh, I'll <laughs> tell you a funny story. My, my wife is from Michigan. I actually uh, I didn't go to college in the U.S. I came to the U.S. after high school, spent a year in New York, mainly actually uh, doing martial arts and playing in a, in a blues band. And then went to Switzerland and went this different school system, went straight to law school, and then even did a doctorate of law and only came to the U.S. in 92 to do like a postdoctorate year at Columbia Law School. So I never actually went to college here or experienced it, but I met my wife in the, in the mid-90s, and she's from Michigan. Uh, and a lot of her family went to the University of Michigan. It's an old Michigan political family. And so just by knowing her and then uh, my best friend at the time and partner, uh, in the law firm was from Michigan, and he was a fanatic Michigan sports team fan from the football lines to the baseball Tigers to the hockey Red Wings. And so uh, it just through that, it happened to be the one state and the one city, and if you look at Detroit in the area, that I knew something about also when it came to sports. It was pure stroke of luck that when this guy Mike, who was from Dearborn, from right near Detroit, uh, kept talking about Michigan and Detroit sports. It's just pure luck that that was the one place I actually could actually have a conversation with him. <laughs> oh, funny how that's, that can turn out. Uh, yep. Certainly, certainly. Um, the, um, is, is there a, a, an effort that governments attempt to dehumanize the people still, or...? Or is it the warlords? You know, I don't think of the regime in Syria, if you're asking specifically about Syria, I don't think there is a meaningful difference between the regime, the government, and the warlords. I think that their methods are really simple, similar. They're just on different sides of that conflict, but they 
they work with tremendous brutality. They don't allow for any dissent, and they try to enrich themselves on their population's misery. So I don't really detect any meaningful difference. So I think that when you talk about these warlords, for me, they're one and the same. Whether someone has a fancy government office or gets to come to New York and speak at the General Assembly of the United Nations, or uh, whether this is someone traveling around in a, in a jeep, uh, transporting drugs or prisoners. I, I don't really make an, uh, certainly no ethical moral distinction between the two. One, is, one just has a fancy title. And by the way, I feel that way about thugs who are in power all over the world. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I, don't, I feel that one of the mistakes that we make in, let's call it polite society, is that we extend way too much respect and deference to killers and, and thieves who just happen to be in control of a certain government. And in fact, uh, I, I think because they crave that, they already have all the wealth in the world as a result of their activities, but what they really crave is this international recognition, which they then go back to their people to and say, see, the whole world accepts us as legitimate rulers. Why can't you guys when the people demonstrate against them? So I think that removing that recognition uh, would be a really, really important thing. And, you know, in that vein, it, it's almost laughable if it weren't so unbelievably tragic that Syria was elected to the World Health Organization's executive board just now in July. Uh, when you hear, you know, it's, it's made up of 34 representatives of member states, but the idea that Syria, which is not just a rogue state, but, but a, a state that has killed hundreds and thousands, maybe millions of its own people, displaced millions, has broken the state entirely, uh, the idea that you would give a government representative and a government that kind of official recognition is is beyond me. And if that, if the United Nations, as an example, can't rethink that approach, maybe the United Nations has has outlived its usefulness too. Yeah, I, I heard that on the news too, and I my jaw dropped, uh, and others did as well. Um, Daniel, would you uh, take a moment and uh, inform my listeners uh, of your book, where they can find it? Um, and how they find you if they'd like to get in touch with you. Sure, with pleasure. So the uh, book can be purchased anywhere books books are bought, whether it's your small indie bookstore in your area or through the online ones, the Amazons and Barnes and & Nobles and so on. Uh, so it really shouldn't be any trouble to find the book. And I do not uh, engage in social media as a matter of principle, but I do have an author's website. It's daniellevinauthor.com, one word, no periods, so daniellevinauthor.com. And in there, there's plenty of background on the books and on this book and other books and also information about myself and, and events. So upcoming events, interviews uh, uh, can be found there on the media page. So I think anything that a reader, an interested reader, would want to look for, he, could find, he or she could find there. Well, if... if if my listeners take long walks with their dogs, they should be tuning in to Audible. Um, it, it thank you. There is, a, there is a link to Audible there on the website, too. Good. Very good. Very good. Um, I want to thank my, uh, my listeners for tuning in uh, again to Searching for Integrity. And um, I want to say thank you again. Daniel, it's an intriguing book. It's uh, could hardly, I can't say I couldn't put it down. I guess I could just take the plug out of my ear because uh, Audible worked for me, and I enjoyed the book very much. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. I really appreciate it. It, it means a lot to an author when, when, uh, when you hear that. And uh, I'm going to say to my uh, audience, as I usually do, so long, and happy trails to all.